Hey everybody, welcome back to the DCVC. I'm your host Akash Bhat and as I bring you this episode today, it's been a very dark week. You know, things are in shutdown, we're largely isolated due to the COVID-19 outbreak. The only upside is that more people are working from home and have slightly more time to be doing things like jumping on this podcast. And my guest today is no different. This week I speak to Karan Mola He's the executive director and head of consumer media and technology at Chirate Ventures. We spoke about how the COVID-19 outbreak is impacting VC ecosystem, evolution of consumer markets in India and investments, and also delved into interesting topics around marketplaces and business models in the country. I'm very excited to share this episode with you all. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So without further ado, here's Karan. Hi, Karan. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really excited about our chat. I know we've been trying to do this for a while now, and I'm super glad that we finally were able to sit down. I am in isolation as we speak, thanks to COVID-19 outbreak. I don't know how things are on your end, but I'd love to uh, just understand what's happening. How's uh, how's your week been? No, thanks so much, Akash. It's, uh, it, it's a very interesting day to be doing this, um, but I think, needless to say, very happy to be doing this. Um, so we're sitting on Friday the 13th uh, of <laughs> March. Um, it's been a it's been a very very interesting week. Uh, lots of ups and downs. Lot of changing things. Um, you know, in 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 India, I think this week we've obviously started taking a lot more precautions, which uh, um, which you know is sort of par for the course. Um, a lot of our work at Chirate is now sort of remote as well. Um, but uh, I think you know. A, the course of the next couple of weeks or so month definitely will sort of define how sort of 2020 plays out. Um, but it's interesting right, to be in the confluence of um, the breakout of, of COVID-19, um, just the macroeconomic situation in general. Um, and then you had the wonderful news about oil prices. So it, it's a great um, confluence of these factors. But I think the number one learning from this and hopefully the number one thing on people's minds is around public health and safety. Um, and hopefully most people are taking the right precautions um, all over the world. Um, that I think that sort of supersedes anything else that we're seeing right now. Absolutely. I think there's a growing concern around a lot of lot of countries, a lot of cities who have actively made it, you know, put, their, put the safety of their citizens first. And that's, I think, a very good thing. And, you know, personally, um, I've been looking at what's been happening and trying to compare the 2020 or 29, late 2019 COVID uh, crisis to the 2008 financial crisis and trying to see if there are any comparisons and uh, any similarities. One thing that I noticed is that we see ecosystem, yeah, definitely there were, there were ups and downs. A lot of investments went down. But at the same time, from the India context, 20% of today's unicorns were founded in and around the 2007 and 2009 period. So it's not really a very grim sort of a situation it's it's i mean of course we see fundings might not remain the same but you know if there's any optimism that people can take out of this is that great companies that come out of it even when you take a look at the companies that were founded in the us airbnb dropbox these are some of the bigger unicorns that were founded during this period so it's a it's i I remember somebody once mentioning on the podcast saying never miss a good crisis so this is a great crisis at hand and maybe people can capitalize on it (laughs) No, absolutely. Look, I think um, if you look at it just purely from the lens of you know investing or the world that we operate in, uh, I'm old enough to have also seen the the one previous uh, downturn, which was sort of 2000 to 2002, 2003. And um, again, the companies that are sort of bellwether tech leaders today were um, a lot of them were founded in that uh, in the wake of that uh, crisis as well. So um, I, I, that that um, that definitely holds true today. Um, I think the first reaction is always of caution. The second reaction is to sort of, second step is to reassess. Uh, the third step is to see what can be done differently. And the fourth step is to say, okay, um, you know, how to look for good opportunities um, and how to look for it a little bit differently than one was, you know, two months back. Um, I will say though, you know, just going back to the early point, what's <coughs> really, Amazing and, and it, it, it's you know commendable 
is a number of um, startups, both big, medium-sized, and, and small, that are taking the kind of you know leadership roles in um, doing things like ensuring public safety for their own employees, and then for the broader society that they operate in, um, for you know being able to manage large number of um, their employees and being able to do you know the work from home bit, which is not easy in a startup. Um, and uh, I, I think startups have actually shown the way in how to deal with with this very very unusual situation. Um, that I and, and I think obviously technology kind of supports it, which may not have been the case uh, even five years back. But right. that's the part which is very interesting to see. And you know, um, there are a few things in the works which I know are happening, which will be, you know, digit, which will be first, uh, at least for India, just given the situation where uh, the whole, you know, uh, remote presence uh, part of it will become a little bit more in, in, in sort of the norm and just not just as the exception. So that that's another part which will, I think, the future of, of how we work and how we sort of operate. Maybe this is one of the inflection points uh, for that cycle. No, absolutely. You're completely right on that. And I agree with you. And I wanted to address this at a later point uh, on the show, but I'm glad you brought this up. How is this affecting you as a VC? When you make investments, are you meeting with founders? Obviously, that's kind of like limited at this point. How is this current crisis affecting the way that VCs are interacting with investment opportunities? Yeah, so, you know, there's there's two parts to it. One is obviously the question that you asked, right? How, how does it affect investment opportunities? Um, and I think the simple answer to that is we're all sort of grappling with a new reality. Um, we all have to understand that the way decision-making happened, the way uh, we look at opportunities and we evaluate it, the way we understand it uh, in the current environment will be different, uh, especially if we're not able to um, you know, be physically present in, in a lot of ways. And I think it's not just with individual, it's with teams, right? Because most investment decisions are done in, in groups of people better known as an IC. Um, mm-hmm. And not ICs, not all ICs are uh, physically present. So <laughs> while, we'll, while we've all had you know, experience in working with, with, with uh, founders and entrepreneurs remotely, I think this presents a whole new paradigm. Um, it will take some time to adjust um, and we'll, we'll each sort of have to find our own bearings in our own way, which will take, you know, maybe a few weeks. But um, I think the fundamental shift is how we think about, you know, the necessity of travel and the necessity of mm-hmm. physical presence will have to change. It's not just because of what's happening in 2020. I think that will change for many, many years to come. That's one part of it. The second part of it is how we interact with obviously within teams and within uh, our existing portfolio companies. And actually, this is the time where you want to be face to face with your founders, helping them, you know, not being a nuisance, but actually helping them think through what what they need to do or how they need to think about the next 12 months. Um, right. And that's sometimes not most of the times that's actually not possible. So I think how you operate even as a board member um, will change. Mm-hmm. And that's the other part of you know what we're trying to figure out, of course. We do board meetings remotely and all that, but this is one of those times where actually being physically present uh, is important, right? We all have board meetings that we always make sure we're there for because it's an important one. That's not possible right now. So, you know, those are the the nuances of being an investor, at least, that one, you know, we're all trying to sort of grapple with over the last week or two weeks. No, it's very interesting that you bring that up because we've been doubling down on our (laughs) efforts and helping our portfolio companies. Because I think the people who are hit hardest are the ones on our portfolio, right? Especially the ones who have a lot of business coming in from Asia, China, and have maybe even on the manufacturing side. I think these are the guys who are hit the most. And especially the ones who are thinking about fundraising at some point this year, mm-hmm. it's, it's only becoming a challenge for them to, to go ahead and raise some sub- subsequent round of funding. So I think doubling down and helping a portfolio companies just trying to like talk to them, be a sounding board and help companies think through this whole crisis. I think it's just a great time for the VCs to support the startup and the other way around as well. No, I, I think that's right. And I think even before the uh, the outbreak from you know late Jan or I think early Feb, when it started getting a little bit more in the mainstream, um, I think we all kind of expected 2020 to be a little bit slow. Uh, I don't think mm-hmm. any, anybody could have thought that things are going to turn out the way they are. Right. Um, so I think that planning and, and that the focus around um, sustainable growth, and that's a word that's tossed around quite a lot, 
but mm-hmm. i think it took a new meaning even earlier this year and now it takes a whole new um you know um realism to it but i think that's where the role of a um of a of a, an investor becomes even more important it's not just about the money and it's not also being on the other side of it when you're sort of a nuisance and you're sitting on you know the heads of your founders every day it's somewhere in the middle right and each situation requires a different handling each founder each founding team requires something different um it's how you're able to sort of support um your uh, your founders and give them what they really need um as opposed to just you know um uh you know giving sort of motherhood uh, statements and i think that anyway everybody will do but i i think it's really getting to the depths of it which is far more important and, and i think in that always you know stands uh, that always works well you know in the long run obviously now i'm glad we did this because um this is the elephant in the room and i'm, I'm very glad that we touched upon this and it would have been unfair to really talk about what's currently happening in the ecosystem around us now that that's out of the way let's get to the real meaty stuff right i want to hear more about you know your journey and how did you get started in venture capital what is the motivation behind it take us through some of the key moments in your career that led you to where you are today um yeah so like i said i <laughs> i think i started my career in the wake of uh, around the time where um you know 2002 2003 when the uh, the green shoots off from the fallout of, of the the dot com and then the you know 2001 recession happened um and uh, i i was in the us um and i think while i had been even at that point some exposure to um to working with startups um you know I, at that time my 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 interest was to be in investment banking and luckily i got the opportunity to work in investment banking in silicon valley um and working with some of the um so you know working with some of the best um and fastest growing private startups um mm-hmm. so i was part of a firm which was acquired by another firm called jeffries in 2003 um and you know worked for about 3 odd years 3 3 and a half years in in the valley work you know really advising some of the fast growing startups and that's i think what <clears throat> got my interest really peaked in 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 the industry i was not an engineer by profession but something about it really interested me and that's that's been the common theme that i've been able to hold on to from there until 2020 um always worked with or in and around technology um for about 5 5 and a half years as a investment banker moved back to india in 2006 2007 with jeffries um and uh, you know covered the market here which was very small outside of it services um a lot of the companies which are then now weren't even founded at that point um mm-hmm. worked in public markets looking at uh, uh again uh, tech uh, startups and te- publicly held tech stocks across asia um and you know realized that either that's something that as a career path one could do for a longer term um if there was you know a little bit um more um of a risk taking ability i think i would have either worked at a startup or started something by myself but i think it, it was about knowing your strengths and figuring out your limitations and getting the best of those um and what i realized was what probably suited me best was to um you know work with startups but maybe not in a very direct way uh and the experience of finance and having worked with vcs before figured that was probably the right thing for me to do um it's uh it's actually going to be 10 years this year uh of, of venture investing and it's been a it's been a very very interesting ride um i think having the initial experience of working with silicon valley startups um working with indian tech companies back you know 13 14 years back and seeing how the market has evolved i think that experience has, has helped me in, in a good stead um obviously since from the time i joined um uh the vc industry to where it is now it's it's a sea change it's gone through probably three different waves uh and we're probably in the in in, in we'll probably start the fourth wave sometime later this year or next year um and what i think what's amazed is and what i think keeps me going pretty much every day is it's really really it, it evolves if not every day it evolves every month and it keeps you so interested and it keeps you uh, so engaged and if you really want to keep challenging yourself it's really to get into something which is uh you know something new or something which you don't know uh, as well and that's what being a vc 
in a market like India, um, I think that's the opportunity it affords you. And that to me is the single biggest reason why I would want to do this for the very, very long foreseeable future. Because I think that, you know, we're somewhere in the first 20, 30% of that wave from a long-term democratic trend in India. And I don't think anybody has an idea of how things will look 20 you know, years from now. And I'm fortunate enough that I'm young enough to be able to, you know, uh, be at this point, having spent 10 years already, I think the next 15, 20 years are going to be, you know, amazing, despite the fact, the the events of, you know, this last week notwithstanding. No, your passionate passion is coming across as very inspiring to me and very motivating. So uh, it seems like you've you've had a great time being uh, in venture capital, and you know, three crises is great for your resume at the end of it. <laughs> if you think about it in retrospect, you know, at, I mean, that's, it, yeah, at at some point, it, it's it's interesting. At some point. Uh, when you, and I know I just said I'm young, but I can put it the other way around. At some point, when you're old enough and you've done this for a while, you also realize that you know each crisis or each each um, upturn downturn teaches you something, and right. you tend to forget it sort of day to day. But actually, it's moments like this which kind of force you to take a step back and you know really think about what you need to do to either reinvent yourself wholly or complete uh, or partially. Um, or what do you need to do differently for the next, you know, five to 10 years when sort of the next wave will happen? Right. Um, and I think if I look at people who um, really hit it out of the park, people I you know, truly admire or I truly respect, I think those are the guys who have actively worked on themselves and have seen a lot of the things happen before they actually do. And, and that's really the dream, right? Um, Absolutely. In that process, if you can be a partner to some great entrepreneurs, I think that that's sort of icing on the cake. But I think for yourself, it's about how can you do, how can you put your skills and what you have to the best you know, use uh, and make a difference at the end of the day as an investor. I, I don't think VCs are going to have the same level of impact as founders will. It's just not possible. And nobody should believe them when they say mm-hmm. that. But I think it's, it, it's certainly possible to be part of that change. And mm-hmm. uh, it, it's really about how you sort of think about yourself Maybe not every year, but in, in situations like this, right? It's sort of a forced, um, a forced uh, event, uh, and I think that's that's the part which gets interesting, even in downturns or potential downturns. No, I mean re- retrospectively speaking, these are the kind of experiences that make VCs a little more valuable, and especially given that there's so much capital in the ecosystem today, and you really get to pick and choose where you take the capital from from a from an entrepreneur perspective. It's really bringing on the right set of people who've had the experience in, you know, it could be different different things, right? It could be crisis management, could be scaling, could be could be something else. But it's really getting the right kind of people onto your cap table and really ensuring that these people would really be part of your journey and help you get to from place A to place B. That's mm-hmm. going to define how startups and their success will uh, will look like in the coming years. You know, you've been in the industry for about, you know, this is your 10th year, but you've seen the larger ecosystem for close to about uh, 20 years or so now. How have you witnessed venture grow as an asset class in India? So, um, you know, my first my first job in uh, was an internship at mm-hmm. Ernst & Young in 2000 um, in Delhi. And uh, Ernst & Young was one of the, uh, they had a corporate advisory services practice, which is still there today. And that was basically their investment banking practice. And uh, as an intern in the go-go days of 2000, um, you know, I, I, I got to work with some of the associates and partners at that time who were, um, you know, advising startups. Um, and startups even in India did exist in 2000 um, in raising capital from VCs. And there were a few VCs even in India. Um, in fact, my um, uh, Sudhir Sethi, who, who's the founder of, of, of our fund, you know, he was one of the only VCs around at that time. And mm-hmm. so it, 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 if you look at a 20 year view that, that I have, even, you know, even though the first job was an internship, it's, it's so different because there are probably five factors or six factors. Number one, I think the sheer amount of liquidity and the, the amount of liquidity that's gone up has been um, exponential probably in the last three or four years. I, I think before that it was somewhat, you know, um, somewhat more, uh, not incremental, but it, it sort of grew at a linear rate it's really exploded in the last two to, two to four years. I think that's one. Um, number two is the <clears throat> the set of entrepreneurs. And um, 
and you know what they bring to the table on day zero. Um, there were some amazing entrepreneurs even back then. Um, if you look at uh, Make My Trip, if you look at um, Nokri and a few others, you know those guys were doing some phenomenal work even back then. But I think the the, the kind of entrepreneurs you see now, I, I think just knock your socks off sometimes, and you're amazed at how they're able to have that clarity of thought and you know the ambition to build something in in a very different way. That's the second thing. The third thing is I think jo- the opportunity set. Um, it's it's not e-commerce. It's not IT services. It's not another payment platform. It's it's whatever you think you can build to you know make a difference in your particular uh, area of interest. Um, and I think that's exploded in the last two to three years. Um, you know, if you just look at the number of core tech, deep tech, emerging tech, any frontier tech, you know, any adjective you want to put before tech coming from India, uh, which was probably not probable even two years back, I think that amazes me. Um, the fourth thing is around how a lot of these companies have been able to grow and scale. And yes, I think there's a fair argument to be made that some of them have done it at the cost of um, you know, equity capital and um, you know, some of the ways that, that, that have, some of the, I guess, maybe the, the bad habits that have come into the system. And it's not founders who to blame. I think it's founders, investors, everybody kind of has their share in it. Uh, but the bigger point is, I think, how companies have been able to scale because of that liquidity is, um, I, I think, was somewhat unfathomable three years back. And the, the, the fifth point is, you know, how they've been able to create large outcomes for themselves, for their investors, for their employees. Um, if you look at all these five factors, um, but if you still look at the role India plays, maybe not as a startup ecosystem, because I think there its share of voices is pretty good. But as a venture ecosystem uh, compared to some of the large global hubs, it's still pretty small. India doesn't punch above its weight. And that's a real opportunity. And there's a little bit of a mismatch into where India should be and where India is and where India could be. And I think that's the opportunity set for venture investors for the next 10, 15 years. Um, And if you trace the growth over the last 20 years, the last three years, four years have been a little bit of a J-curve. Of course, it'll have ups and downs for the next 10, 15 years, but I think it's somewhat in one direction only. And that's the part which is so interesting as a venture investor to get up every day and you know meet entrepreneurs meet your portfolio companies look for opportunities so how are you thinking about the venture ecosystem in india because you mentioned where india should be and could be if you're talking say five or ten years from now what is your projection for what the ecosystem could look like um say in 2030 at the start of the next decade so if you look at um the depth in the ecosystem. Um, I think at the entrepreneur founder level, it's it's starting to come. It, it, in fact, I'd say in some ways it's it's there, especially in some of the larger cities. Um, I think if you look at the participation from beyond the top five cities, it's still very low, and it's a little bit of a vicious cycle because founders are not able to get capital so easily, hence they're not able to grow as much, hence they're not able to find talent, and you know, that sort of repeats in itself. I, I think that'll change. Um, and I think that'll change because of, I think the ambition is there from uh, founders and, and um, talent even outside of the top five cities in India. But I think also because of participation of capital from those places is going to help mm-hmm. promote entrepreneurship in a way which has not happened in the last, whatever, you know, 10 years in India. So that's one part of it, which I think will be very interesting because, you know, India is, is a nation of a lot of, you know, small businesses, of a lot of micro entrepreneurs that hasn't come to this sector in the same way, right? Um, and everybody flourishes sort of under the radar. I, I think that will be one big sea change. Um, the second, I think, will be the depth on the on on capital. Um, I think it's starting to happen at the early stages. It's starting to happen on venture, although if you look at venture. The number of funds which were there 10 years back is not very different from the number of funds that are there today. The difference is I think fund sizes have gone up, so there's a little bit more capital. But I think where a lot of growth will come is sort of the next stage, which is sort of growth, early growth uh, capital, where we're still reliant on a lot of the outside funds or a lot of the crossover funds 
a lot of the hedge funds sometimes um, to come in. And I think that dedicated capital pool um, of both Indian funds as well as funds from the outside who hopefully will look at India as a permanent um, uh, you know, ca- uh, established base. Um, a lot of folks from Silicon Valley have been doing this sort of fly and fly out over the last 12 to 18 months. But I think a permanence in that will, again, change the ecosystem in a much more fundamental way. The third is around, again, the opportunity set. Um, over the last 10 years, at least, I've been investing full-time. Um, the first five years, I think India, both entrepreneurs and VCs, and I think entrepreneurs, because VCs wanted them to, were looking at opportunities which they could build in India, but <coughs> borrowed from you know what what had worked in the U.S. or what had worked in China to some extent. Right. The last two or three years, I think, have seen a lot of true Indian firsts come out, uh, opportunities come out, and be established in a way where they can actually create large platforms, and then hopefully in, in years to come, large outcomes. I think that's the second wave. Um, a lot, obviously, a lot of innovation ha- has happened on technology. But I'd say probably more innovation has happened on business model, right? Um, because that's what that's what the situation, you know, uh, necessitated. The next uh, ten years, I think, while that will continue to happen, you will also see, you know, um, I, I don't want to put a label on it because it's not fair. But I think we will genuinely see core technology platforms coming up. Out of India, uh, and I don't mean necessarily you know flying cars or autonomous vehicles. It could be solving Indian problems, but just done in you know using technology as a disruptor as opposed to using technology as an enabler, which is what's been largely the case over the last you know 10 years. So I think those are some of the things that I hope to see, and I'm pretty sure will happen. It's just a question of when. I don't think it's a question of if. Um, but does it happen in five years, seven years, 10 years, or 15 years? But I think those are the things which will. Move, move, you know, continue to move that in that one um, uh, one democratic trend upwards. Now I'm seeing that personally myself as well. Uh, a lot of companies that I'm coming across today are focused on solving local problems with local solutions and technology. And I think that's really important. That shift, you can see that shift, right? Between I would say somewhere between 2017 to 2018 and 2019, you can see a lot of companies trying to address the issues that India is presenting to it. And with that comes the opportunity to really disrupt a market that's probably not as seen as seen this kind of a solution. And me too businesses only work to an extent because uh, you need a market that really warms up to it. And if it doesn't, then it's very difficult for you to scale a business that's probably worked in different markets like uh, the US or Europe or China and then try to replicate that uh, in India. Because one of the things that I often tell people is it's very difficult to to scale businesses within India itself. Every market is different. You have tier one, two, three, and the way that every audience and each audience in that behaves is very different from, you know, the segment one, segment two, segment three in the U.S. And that fragmentation really causes uh, a lot of friction for companies, even if they were to copy and paste a model uh, in the country. And I'm glad you touched upon that. I, I'd like to see more companies who are addressing local issues, because I think that's where the whole disruption really is going to stem out of. You know, I wanted to follow up to uh, one of the things that you mentioned in in that segment as well. Where are you at when you're thinking about exit strategy and the exit scenario? Because one thing that we haven't really touched upon is everybody talks about the opportunity that uh, India presents, but it's still a very young asset class if you think about it, relatively speaking. So where's the VC's mindset when they're thinking of exit scenarios? What do they think would be the potential return, say, five years, 10 years from now? And how is that going to really impact the way that, you know, venture capitalists are making investments today? So the way I, you know, um, the way I'd sort of think about that is, again, over the past (coughs) 10 odd years, um, obviously there have been a few fairly large exits, but um, most of them, most of the really large ones have been around um, M&As. And there have been a few very large secondary exits for for VCs mm-hmm. and those will continue um, because again capital is um, especially at, at in if you look at larger pools of capital it, it's not um, there are enough good assets and 
um, I think most of them are at a scale where capital will want to participate either through primary, if they cannot find the primary way of investing company through secondaries. And strategic interest will continue to be there. And strategic interest, I think, will continue to happen more and more also from Indian companies, not just a Walmart situation, right, where they acquired mm-hmm. Flipkart. What we've obviously not seen is a barrage of, you know, very high-profile IPOs happen uh, in India. There have been, I think, uh, somewhere between 10 to 15 VC-backed IPOs over the past five years, which is not a very large number. Um, right. We've been, uh, you know, we've, we've and this is not a plug in anyway, but we've been fortunate to be part of two of them. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I think there have been a couple of reasons why that number is, is, is quite low. Um, one is, I think, obviously, for companies to get to scale, it's taken time. And this is still the first wave of companies you're talking about who reach scale today. Um, right. And again, not to use you know, valuation as a um, benchmark for, for IPOs. But even if you look at revenue, which revenue and then sort of how that trickles down to profitability, if you want large IPOs, you, you know, obviously need to be at a certain scale in revenue to be able to attract the right amount of institutional capital. Um, you will see that happening in the next two to three years. Of course, if 2020 is a bit of a choppy period, then some of those may get pushed up by six to 12 months. But I think you're going to see somewhere between 10 to 15 um, IPOs in the next three to four years, mm-hmm. uh, and probably you know 50 in the next five to six years, right? Because that's the kind of pipeline that we see happening. And I'm, you can easily correlate that to how many unicorns are in India, but that's not the point because there's a lot of um, good companies which are going to get profitable sooner. And public market exit is the way a lot of them would like to go for. Um, if you talk to entrepreneurs, a lot of them are wanting to build companies for IPO. And that's something which I think may not have existed two, three years back, right? I think entrepreneurs were happy to get exits. VCs were happy to get exits. But I think now that a lot of the active VCs have had a good track record of exits, <clears throat> largely through M&As or secondaries, um, I think we're all happy to have, you know, work with one or two uh, or multiple founders to actually take them to public markets. That, I think, is the part which still needs to get proved out, right? Um, and Does that, that hold is a part true even for the consumer consumer space? Absolutely. It, I think it holds true for um, for all spaces. Um, okay. If you look at you know enterprise companies, you look at uh, you can just look at uh, Freshworks, Druva, and there's a bunch of others um, bubbling up. Um, definitely for consumer companies, and I think the part on consumer companies is when can they get to profitability level. Um, right. Off the top of my head, without naming them, there are I can easily think of probably between eight to ten companies which are at a point in place where they can get, um, you know, public market valuations north of a billion dollars and are profitable today or will be sometime this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are ideal candidates for uh, taking comp- uh, taking those companies public. Interesting. And, um, you know, one of the things I wanted to cover on this episode is a number of sub themes that you've been a part of and that's that's part of your day to day. And given that your expertise or areas of focus is consumer media and technology, I'd like to delve a little more deeper here, if that's fine with you. Sure. Let's uh, start with two simple questions and let's go with two sprints, uh, 2013 to 2018 and then 2018 and beyond, which is currently where we are. How is technology disrupting consumer and media? And how does that really fit into the larger context of uniqueness and challenges that India presents as a market? So I think those are two separate questions uh, for two different sub-segments. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at consumer or consumer tech, um, the way, and I go back to an earlier point that I made, I think the way technology played a role was largely as an enabler um, Mm -hmm. and largely for innovating on the business models. Um, If you look at, um, and uh, I think also in India around, um, you know, things which are not at the forefront on on the consumer side, but happen in the back in like supply chain innovation. You know, so I think those are areas where technology has played a large role. And if you look at um, companies which have, which are sort of bellwether leaders today in consumer tech, I think all of them had or built um, their platform from a technology-led approach rather than a people-led approach, 
Um, uh-huh. And because that that allowed them to scale faster, right? Um, I think that will continue to happen. What I think we're yet to see happen in a large way is where technology is playing a role, not just to help enable business model innovation, but also to play a role in uh, either distribution um, or you know being able to create products um, which are available to consumers in a way where it's a very differentiated offering. And I think those are things which, I, which we're yet to see happen. Um, and I think those are the kind of um, uh, those are the kind of trends that I look forward to over the next five years. Um, if you look at uh, if you look at media tech um, as an industry in India, it, it's obviously had a it's obviously had a slower growth curve, and it's largely because a the the ad dollar market in India is not that big, uh, b it's largely dominated by two large platforms. Right. Um, and see, so I think the space available or the um, the opportunity available for startups to disrupt has been somewhat slow. Um, however, having said that, if you look at companies like um, uh, ShareChat or Dream11, especially in the last three or four years, I think they've done phenomenally well. But you know, one is is not uh, one company has not really um, is is only starting its monetization uh, focus as of the last year. The other obviously monetize in a very different way, not necessarily through ads. So mm-hmm. I think if you're looking at advertising as a model of growth in India, um, there are very, very few companies. I think it's like Daily Hunt is a third. Right? So there are probably three companies I would sort of put at the, at the, at the forefront of media tech. Um, what I think what's interesting is, and a lot of the companies that came out in media tech and, and I think the ones that we've also invested in, I think really focus on the uh, segment A of users in India, where mm-hmm. you know ad dollars are obviously somewhat limited based on what you've seen on Facebook and Google. What's interesting in some of the companies that we're seeing now, and that obviously at smaller scale, is because of the audience sets that, fo- that they're focusing on, um, the level of you know innovation that you see on on technology, on usage, and potentially the way they can look at monetization will be quite different. It's early, so it, it's it's a tough one to sort of call um, right now. But I think those are pockets of innovation that we see uh, where good investments, good founders will will you know continue to grow. Um, and that's I think the that's where I, we see at least at least for us um, areas of potential investments coming in media tech. Right. Now, you mentioned something about business models and how two dominant players, namely Facebook and Google, which make up for a large chunk of the market when it comes to ad revenues. Are you looking or are you seeing an evolution coming up out of the landscape where there's a shift from an ad-based model to a subscription-based model? And if so, what does that really mean for the ecosystem in general? Uh, to a very, very small extent. Um, part of that reason is, I think, the issue of payments and micropayments has is it's not completely solved, but I think people are trying to are starting to figure that out. So I don't think it's an infrastructure problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's twofold. One is uh, is there enough discretionary income in the hands of people to be able to spend money right on um, on on digital media? Number mm-hmm. one, there's certainly time, right? So if you look at the elements what do you need to make subscription model work, especially on media? You need time, you need convenience, um, and you need the willingness to pay. Clearly, there is a lot of time on people's hands. Um, mm-hmm. You can see that just in, if you just look at the amount of, you know, um, if you look at the amount of daily usage for multiple media platforms that, that people are on. So it, right. that's there. I think the, the willingness to pay and the... Um, the cultural affinity towards that model, I think, is still happening. People generally in India expect to get things that they view or see or read for free. So I think that will that is changing at a segment day level. At yet it's yet to change at the mainstream level. The third is around the ability or the willingness to pay. Um, I think that bit still needs to be solved. That has to do with just you know how much money people have left over and where they want to spend. Um, I think it'll take <coughs> my own views. It'll take a little bit of time. But those are some of the longer-term um, revenue streams that we do see happening. 
maybe not in the next one or two years. It'll probably take a little bit longer. So as an investor, as a founder, you need to have enough patience to be able to build a large user base and then over time be able to monetize it as opposed to um, you know, being starting to monetize it early on. And if I, you know, it's not one of our portfolio companies, I'm happy to sort of use it as an example. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the way um, an academy has been able to do it on the education side, right? I think right. they had patience and they, I think they had the support of investors to be able to build a platform and only think about monetization when there was enough, enough relevant content, enough relative use, relevant users and the network effects were already there. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of a platform is, is, is rare to build. ShareChat's done it in, in a very similar way as well. But I think they, they require a very different approach from founders, from investors, right? Um, mm-hmm. That's the part which is crucial in, in not making the same um, uh, mistakes as, as what's happened in the past. You know, I like that part that you mentioned, um, you know, because I personally feel that virtually all content today is on the verge of being gigged, if I can put it that way. So are you seeing a convergence between media and e-commerce in India? Uh, or in other words, what does the rise of digital media marketplaces look like? We're starting to see a little bit of that. I, I wouldn't say it's at in, in um, I think there's a very high level of segmentation there. Um, mm-hmm. So if you look at what companies are trying to do is... what's the role of digital media for e-commerce, right? I think one is around discovery. The second is maybe around influence. And the third is around helping fulfill. Mm -hmm. Um, At least that's how I look at it, right? That's the framework that maybe I use. On the discovery side, I I, I clearly see that the way segment A of, you know, the 100 million users in India relate to e-commerce platforms and the way the next two, 300 million users um, behave is very different. Um, they're not, the way people shop and the intent of shopping is very different. Um, the way they um, engage with e-commerce platforms is very different. So mm-hmm. that's where the use of digital media can come and play a large role. Um, I, I, as a user, I'm not going to use or I'm not going to really have a large influence by a third party on digital media push products to me because I'm fairly clear about what I want to buy. Yeah, it may be one or two impulse things here, but it's not going to drive a whole lot of value. It's very mm-hmm. different from a user who's, you know, come on, come online in the last two or three years. Um, they, I mean, I've been shopping on Amazon for 20 years. This person is not. Um, so I think how they interact with, uh, with, with transaction um, platforms and the use of digital media with that can be different. Now, there, there, there are ways to characterize this, right? You can call it influencer marketing, social commerce, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But I think the point is, those are the models which we're starting to see work in India in very different ways than what they have, uh, than how they have worked in the US and certainly different than how they've worked in China. Um, but we're still to figure out the, the right way to do it at scale. It's happening in pockets. Um, somebody's doing it in live TV, somebody's doing it in, in product reviews, somebody's doing it as pure influencer selling, pushing. Um, mm-hmm. But the right way it'll happen or the way it can happen at a large scale, I, we're definitely yet to see that uh, play out, to be honest. No, I totally agree with that because uh, what you know, digital, digital media marketplaces have that traditional media doesn't is democratization and diversity. And to do and make this model work, you need you need it to be voluminous in uh, in the way that the distribution happens, and it can only happen at a at a greater scale and at larger velocity if you think about it. And it's a pure marketplace strategy, right? It's very similar to how Uber or Airbnb or Etsy have done it in the past. And because of this, it has many or the same constructs and issues that marketplaces offer. Yeah, I think the other thing, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> The other thing which is important in addition to what you mentioned is uh, is contextual uh, or it's context, sorry. Um, uh, contextualization, sorry, that was the mm-hmm. word I was looking for. Uh, contextualization for, um, for users when you are using it as a digital media marketplace, right? To, you, to use your word, I think is probably the most important thing. Um, 
that can happen when you have a um, as you said right a democratization of content and of users um, and then you can build in very specific things for different types of users which you may or may not be able to do for on traditional e-commerce platforms everybody talks about personalization but mm-hmm. the level of personalization that can happen you know builds over a period of time if you're wanting to get people in and start shopping and not you know spend two years just discovering products um you have to do it in a very different way and i think that's what you know social commerce or digital media marketplaces or influencer marketing allows you to do um uh, but i think finding the right balance is something which we're still we're still waiting to happen in the market i don't think it's reached that point yet i agree and the other thing is that the content creators today are more closely tied to the success of the platform than they were ever before and that brings me to the topic of defensibility of technologies in this space i'm curious to get your thoughts around two side and market effects and what that really means in the context of platform marketplaces and asymptotic marketplace if right. that makes sense yeah again i think it's 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 a great question it's it's also different based on you know whether you're selling um, a a product or a service mm-hmm. um and uh, you know we 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 invested in both types um i i i tend to believe and i, I think it's 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 fairly obvious that i think the in in the initial days the quality of supply is sort of the most important ingredient right i right. think that that that's number 1 number 2 um the supply needs to be able to seek you know concrete and continuous value from the from the from the platform um and i think it can happen and it does happen in the form of you know minimum revenue or minimum guarantee or so, you know certain incentive payouts uh which is i think required because you're ultimately in most cases uh trying to change behavior on both sides both on supply as well as on demand right mm-hmm. but within a short period of time i think the supply needs to see more than uh just the uh you know the the revenue or the incentives that they're getting and actually see a slightly longer term uh, value association with that platform what that does is the the supply that the part of the supply that sees that sticks on and some of the weaker supply kind of weeds off right when you take away those kinds of incentives um and they are never or the weaker supply is generally never able to challenge the platform by doing it themselves because um you know they kind of see that you know they'll be able to create some some sort of a benefit for themselves but it's it's nowhere the same way and you will probably also see you know the top 5% of your platform in in a, in, in the relevant cases in the relevant marketplaces churn out because they're able to do it themselves it, again it, it may not happen for let's say an uber driver or an ola driver right because where else are they going to go but it can happen where you know they can use another platform or an independent platform to be able to create the same level of value um that's i think on the supply side of it right on on demand it it's a little bit different i guess because um the network effects that are required to take place generally take a little bit longer and in a country like india i i think especially for um, actually both for products and services um the the value that you see doesn't necessarily happen in the you know the first purchase um may not even happen in the second purchase um but i think when you are able to see you know your cohorts over a longer period of time coming back and not necessarily because they're being remarketed remarketed to um or getting additional discounts but because they're actually coming back either because they've tried everything else and they realize this is the best thing for them um so your repeat cohorts over over a slightly longer period of time um whether it's whether months or years depending on your particular use case um i think those ultimately end up you know create making you realize as the owner of that platform uh that look how much value are you sort of being able to derive right um and each platform has obviously their own way of calculating lifetime value but the ones which are able to do it and and truly create network effects is obviously where you ha- you're having the uh the cohorts coming back repeatedly over a period of time but also um 
the uh, the coefficient in terms of how they're able to get others to come on that platform right. is high. And that, I think we're starting to see uh, some of that happen in India now, right? With, with mm-hmm. some platforms which have been able to create um, either a great service platform or whose NPS is really high. And that referral coefficient, obviously when it becomes one, <laughs> it's not, I don't think it's there for pretty much most platforms, but I think the closer you get to one, I think that's when your network effects really, really start kicking in. Absolutely. The other thing that I'd like to add here also is that timing becomes very important, right? For example, a company like Quibi couldn't have existed uh, independently on its own, say, two or three years ago. So I'm curious to understand how you or Chirate think about timing with respect to technologies, irrespective of sectors that they operate in. And, you know, personally, when I look at startups, I pay a lot of attention to economic impetus, technology catalyst for you know widespread adoption and cultural acceptance of um, the technology and the phenomena as such. Is the society in a position to embrace this product? What is your thought process? We look at it from the context of, because we invest in Indian companies, I think we look at it from the context of India. Um, so the lens, the, um, the, the, the idea is the same, the lens is completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, because um, I know you gave the, insa- the example of Quibi with respect to the U.S. market. Um, I, I think obviously we have to apply the lens of the India market, right? So right. I think here, like I said, the, the idea is very similar, but you have to look at it from a different way in terms of saying it's not necessarily the technology, but is this something that people are willing to, uh, you know, change their behavior towards? And it does, whether it's consumer or, or, or fintech or healthcare, you know, is this, is this something that they're willing to, like you said, you know, willing to embrace and change the way of the status quo? Uh, you know, a great example, I, that, again, not, not to plug our company, but um, a great example, if you look in the space of mobility in India, um, mm-hmm. one of the companies we're involved in is, is a company called Bounce. Um, mm-hmm. And at least in the city of Bangalore and Hyderabad, um, they have changed the way shared uh, mobility works. Right, um, and that was in many ways a category creator, which really didn't exist. But mm-hmm. there were several reasons why we and a bunch of other investors thought that it it, it could change in 2018, 2019, 2020. Now, could that have happened three years back? Probably, or, or and even if yeah. it did, it may not have happened in the same way. It may not have right. grown in the same way. But you're right. I think the confluence of those reasons help that company and obviously several others grow the way they have. Uh, but to go back to your point, absolutely. And you have to apply that lens. Um, and, and I think that's what, you know, being too early can can sort of be a detriment, right? If, if you were mm-hmm. an Indian investor in e-commerce in 2005, you probably would have burned through a lot of money. But right. somehow investing in 2010 and 11, uh, and again, it's not every company that did well, but I think generally those companies that started off at that time had a good shot. Companies that mm-hmm. came three years later had an even better shot, right? Because the infrastructure was there, payments was there. Um, but you absolutely have to apply that lens that if you're too soon or if you're too late, right? It, it works both ways. Um, right. It can certainly come in, mm-hmm. it will always come in, you know, hit you um, in, in, a, in, a, in a pretty big way. No, I, I wanted to shift gears a little bit and understand more from the insights and, and learnings from within your portfolio. You know, when you're looking at entrepreneurs and founders building consumer businesses, what are some of the things that you have seen them overlook or at the same time, you know, overrate when it comes to building their own own businesses? If you talk to, I think, if you talk to entrepreneurs in general, um, I think they will probably come back, most of them will come back and say the part which they have maybe underestimated or undervalued in early days, uh, mm-hmm. but have been able to sort of recognize as a king is around um, uh, is around the team, right? Their own team, who they hire, when they hire, the culture that they set. Um, and I think that that would probably be the the, the biggest thing that the most common thing that they would come back with, and that's no different for our portfolio. Um, I think besides that, um, I would say the other common learning that we've had is companies and founders that have done well, and 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 I mean 
really sort of separated themselves from from the pack. I think they've all focused and you know done really really well on one thing or on one product or on one business line. Um, again, just to give learnings from our our own portfolio. You know, um, when we were investors in Lenskart, or soon after that, they opened three other different verticals for watches and bags and jewelry. And you know, eventually they shut all of those down because they said, look, we can either become uh, sort of a, a large marketplace for you know all fashion accessories and jewelry, or mm-hmm. become the brand or the actually the brand because it's a brand today, become the brand for for eyewear in India. And that's what they are today. And I, I don't know if they would have been in the same place had they not fo- you know, done that focused exercise. The same thing is true for, uh, for First Cry. Um, you know, in the early days, we had a, a beauty personal care um, business as well, which we completely cut down at some point. So I think those are probably the two things which I find coming up over and over again, which is having the right team at the right time and to focus on the right thing, right? Um, I, I think you could probably draw that parallel to all portfolio companies that are uh, uh, that you would, you know, sort of um, put in as market leaders or as, you know, uh, bellwethers in the market today. What about on the other side? What is one area that the you think that they probably allocate too many resources to, or an, an area that is probably overrated in a VC's a VC's uh, perspective? Yeah, I, I think it's 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 very difficult to generalize, to be honest, um, mm-hmm. because it's each situation will be very different. Um, but at least I'll, you know, let me maybe turn it in on its head and say, I think where sometimes VCs get it wrong um, is to get excited by uh, the and I'm talking about tech VC investors. I think is to get excited by technology sometimes. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, uh, overestimating how that market will uh, will change and grow, um, and that's the part which I think there's a tremendous amount of critical thinking that's required in early in, in early stage venture investing. Um, it's not there's nothing wrong about taking a bet because it's based on some level of instinct and experience, but I think that's the part where a lot of VCs tend to get it wrong. Um, right, and um, that's probably an easier one to characterize as opposed to what founders do because I think it's just very it's very situational from a founder perspective. Now, thanks for that insight. You know, we touched upon this in the earlier part of the episode where you mentioned, uh, or rather I mentioned, that it's very difficult to scale consumer businesses, but there are exit scenarios that are, that are possible. Now, while scaling consumer businesses, if I'm a founder, how can I protect myself when it comes to equity dilution uh, when I'm scaling my business, if there are any you know notes that you can share from your playbook, some anecdotal insights that you might have come across in the industry, what should they be aware of um, to protect what they really own? Well, these are I think very personal calls for founders, um, mm-hmm. and I've seen different founders um, react different in different situations, and I think that's you know it, it's. It's very, very difficult to uh, find fault with, you know, what founders, how founders think about this, because at the end of the day, like you said, right, it, it's, it, this is something that they've, this is the only thing that they're doing. This right. is one of many portfolios for VC. But I also think, I also think VCs do think about this a little bit more progressively. Mm-hmm. Um, so for from a founder perspective, I think, like I said, the personal call they have to make is, look, if I need to, it's a, it's about how to build the business. It's about how much capital is required. Um, and do I want to build a large business? Is it possible through a lot of capital? How do I want to try and raise it? Um, and, you know, those are the decision points each time you go and fundraise. Um, mm-hmm. The whole founder-investor relationship kind of dictates how that gets um, played out over time, right? But I, like I said, I think VCs, maybe not everyone, but I know we've, and a lot of other people that we work with, I think there are progressive thoughts around that in, in terms of, um, you know, giving um, options or equity back to founders based on certain milestones if they're over diluting and making sure that there is enough skin in the game that is, a, that is so that it's of a lot of interest to them, right? right. Because it is a longer term um, 
commitment. Uh, it's a yeah. it's a longer term commitment um, from on behalf of the founder. So there have always been ways and means that have existed to make it happen. I think mm-hmm. we've seen enough of that in 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 India, not just in our portfolio but others as well. Okay, if I were to flip that question, you know what what are some of the interesting questions that founders can ask VCs when you know they're in the same room pitching to them? I don't know if a lot of founders really get this, especially at the early stage. But VCs, you know, they see close to I'm, I'm talking about a micro VC, uh, 600 to 800 startups a year, and then probably make investments in like six to eight. That's like one percent or even fewer. So more than an investment opportunity, in my opinion, it's an opportunity for them to learn from somebody who's probably looking at thousands of business plans in a year, and in some cases, even deep dove into um, some of the competition. So what do you think founders should be asking of VCs when they meet them? Maybe for the first time or multiple times when they've met them, but you know it hasn't probably uh, translated to an investment. So I think founders should look at you know what's the uh, the relevant experience of of that venture um, fund and you know the whom they're they're speaking to with respect to their own segment or their own sector. And if if there is you know uh, if there's if there is none, then sometimes you sort of tie it back to, okay, look, what's your interest in, in this particular market? Right? Why are you looking at this? And I think those are conversations which help. Ultimately, I I always you know say this, and I say this very openly, I tell founders that, look, you must do your own diligence, right? You must talk to mm-hmm. founders who, who have worked with us. Um, you must talk to founders who have not worked with us, right? And and get to know what's good and what's bad. Uh, because it's a longer-term commitment, five, six, seven years, um, maybe longer sometimes. And you kind of need to know what you're getting yourself into. And um, I've seen more and more founders do that. And, and uh, you know, I, I'll be honest, sort of whatever someone says on, on your, whatever sort of some, whatever someone's done in the past, right, with uh, with founders, with the ecosystem, within the ecosystem in general, it, it does come back in both good and bad ways. So I always said to founders and we as a fund always said to, to potential in, uh, founders who we're talking to please do your homework on us please talk to you know people about us so you'll get to know what's good and what's bad and that's the only way where you can actually have a you know an equal relationship because that's what it is it's not it cannot be one person talking down to the other in 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 any situation otherwise it's you'll always have a dynamic which is kind of uneasy and unstable right so thanks, thanks for that, Karan. I want to uh, move into the rapid fire section where I can probably dissect the more human side of VCs. Absolutely. The first question that I have to you is, what's one thing that you'd like to change about venture capital in India? I think ho- over time, uh, being able to sort of put our uh, money where our mouth is, um, and I think it'll happen. Um, I think it will definitely happen. How, how have you seen yourself evolve from the time that you started to where you are today? Um, I think the hardest part is, um, you know, uh, this is something somebody told me when I was joining, before I joined, they said, and, and they said, look, the, one of the hardest would be that you'll say no to so many people so much of the time. And, uh, you know, you shouldn't let that impact you professionally and definitely not personally. Um, I, I mean, thankfully, I don't think it's happened personally, but I think professionally, you always start to look at what could go wrong. And that tendency sometimes is there. But, you know, I, I think surrounding yourself with the right in the right environment so that you try and, you know, look at things a little bit more positively is important, again, both professionally and personally. So I think that's right. the one one thing which being an investor can can have on you because you really will say no a lot more than you'll say yes. Absolutely. I can't have you leave the show without answering this question. From your perspective, where do you think the next big innovation in the consumer space is going to emerge from in India? I, I think there's many. I don't think it's one. Um, if you look at uh, what we're doing recently, um, I, I do think one area around um, uh, one area that we are very confident of is around mobility in, in all shapes and forms. Um, we've made a couple of investments three investments in the last year, we're hopefully going to make a couple more. But I think mobility in all its forms will um, will create a tremendous amount of disruption. Um, and if you look at, uh, I think the one um, dark horse in, in on the consumer side, which I, I tend to believe will create 
a lot of uh, interesting opportunities is around gaming. Um, and we've seen that in, in sort of bits and forms. Obviously, Dream 11's uh, taken it to a, a different level. But I think g- India as a gaming nation will emerge in the next 10 years. Um, and it's largely to do more with the, the demographic um, pyramid that we have um, and how we're sort of getting digitized in a much more um, everyday manner. Uh, I think that's a dark horse. What happens when it happens? All that is is sort of TBD. But those are the two segments which you know I'm. I mean, there's many others too, but I think those are two which I have a lot of um, uh, a lot of excitement for because they can create very very large outcomes, right? As an as a venture investor, at least. Absolutely, and I have to bring you back on the show some other time to talk more in more about gaming and sports tech. As you know, that's my core areas of focus. But it was a pleasure having you on the show, Karan. It was. Such a great time. You are very generous with your time and insights. I had a super time chatting with you. So really appreciate everything that you've said over the course of the last 60 minutes or so. No, like Azakash, I think it was, um, I think the the time on a Friday night went back, went by much faster than I thought it would. Um, and it's been super, um, super engaging, uh, thinking through some of the questions you had. Um, you know, I, I know some of the areas that you worked previously are sort of personal passion areas of mine, especially on sports tech so would love to talk more about that but it, it's really been awesome and uh, like I said it was an interesting way, week an interesting day and <laughs> hopefully the times ahead are equally interesting but not not as volatile absolutely another great guest another great episode lots of super insights in there you can clearly see that currents plugged in deep into the ecosystem and is a seasoned VC I love this take on network effects, consumer markets, digital media marketplaces, and growth of ventures and asset class in India. Well, if you've enjoyed this episode as much as I did, please do subscribe to the show as I bring you great VCs and angels investing in tech startups in India. I'd also appreciate it if you left me a review as it'll help others discover this podcast. Stay safe, everybody. Avoid large gatherings for now. And remember, no matter what happens, never miss out on a good crisis. On that note, I'd like to leave you all on something that I tell you and something that I live by. Keep hustling.